the real formula of success is to constantly fail without losing enthusiasm. You're listening to Producing with Purpose, an ethical business podcast with me, Tony Corrales. We'll be speaking to some of the greatest CEOs, creatives, founders, and entrepreneurs who have established and managed companies that put ethical practices at the forefront of their mission, all whilst navigating the challenges of the business world. Welcome to Producing with Purpose, the podcast that speaks to some of the greatest minds in ethical entrepreneurship. It is episode 13, lucky for some and lucky for you because today is a brilliant episode. We are speaking to Jordan Nodase of Boyish Jeans and something a little bit different here, we've actually split this episode into two parts. So it's a pretty long one. It was a long conversation I had with Jordan and I loved it. It was absolutely awesome. Again, as I say for all of these, it was someone I really wanted to speak to. It was a personal goal achieved. I feel like every episode is a personal goal achieved. And this conversation was no exception. We really got stuck into the history of what Jordan has been working in and what he's been working on and the journey that led to Boyish and then the early stages of Boyish getting up and running. And then we went into a whole deeper conversation about some of the, the fashion industry, the way it is working with wholesalers and distributors, what it's like just getting motivated to keep hustling for a couple of years in the industry just to get the ball rolling. And it really had a natural division in two parts there, the sort of backstory of Jordan and the backstory of Boyish and all the work that went into that, and then some of his insights. So as I say, I've split this into part one and part two. Each one is about 40 minutes long. I recommend you listen to all of this one and then you get stuck into the second part of this. But if you're here really for some of that business insight as well, then part two is where we really dig into some of that. Saying that though, there is also a lot of great business insight and insight into the fashion industry and the sustainable fashion industry in part one. So I genuinely recommend you check out both parts of this and just split it into two, you know, it might be two rounds of a commute to and from work or something like that. I'm not going to talk much more because what you'll also find is I'm going to actually drop out the updates about what I'm doing and what's happening with the business no skin at the beginning of these episodes because I'm going to be releasing that as an extra episode in the middle of the week. I've got five guests lined up for the coming weeks on the podcast. We're back in full swing. So I'm actually going to ridiculously after I struggle to do one episode a week start releasing twice a week one interview with a person and then one update and some guidance from me and really me digesting what I've learned from these conversations and putting that back out to you in a sort of more succinct format as well. So getting straight into it, Boyish Jeans are an incredible brand. They are a almost fully sustainable denim brand. And you'll know what I mean when you listen to this. You know, sustainability in fashion is a journey. It is not a complete destination. Nobody is perfect, but Boyish come damn close. Jordan has really dedicated his dedicated his life to learning about sustainability in fashion, to applying it to his brand, and also making a beautiful product. So while you're listening to this, as long as you're not driving or something, get out your phone, jump onto boyish.com and check out what they're doing. It is it's an inspiring brand for me, also doing a denim and clothing brand. And I think you'll really get around their products. And, you know, even though we've got denim coming out soon, I wholeheartedly recommend you get around these guys as well and go and see if there's something that suits you and buy from these guys, especially in these tough times. So here it is, episode 13 of Producing with Purpose with Jordan Nodase of Boyish Jeans. Enjoy. So 
So today on Producing with Purpose, I'm here with Jordan Nodase of Boyish Jeans. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here, man. Actually, when I was starting No Skin, I listened to a podcast with you. I uh, can't remember the name of it, but I remember listening to you speak and I was like, that guy is doing very similar to I wanna, what do I want to be achieving. And, you know, you spoke about it so passionately. So to have you here on the show today is a real pleasure. So thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I always love chatting with other people that are passionate about, you know, similar like-minded topics. So I'm sure we're gonna have a great conversation today. Awesome, mate. So as you know, as you probably do on all of these, let's just kick things off a little bit. Let's hear from you a little bit about Boyish, um, a little bit about your journey as well prior to that, because, you know, you've got a pretty extensive fashion background prior to Boyish. So just take us through the, so that, you know, the abridged version of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Boyish is, you know, it's a sustainable woman's brand that's based here out of uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and we look for designing our supply chains all the way back to farms and, and fiber. Uh, mm-hmm. And we apply it to uh, fashionable um, garments that are in season, but also timeless at, yeah. at the same perspective. So we're always trying to align many different cards and trying to figure out where our lane sits somewhere in the middle. We always, I, you know, my concept's always balance. Life is all about balance that you can't have too much of something or too little of something. It's almost kind of like if you use the best example of love, you know, if you love somebody too much, it's like you push them away. If you love them too little, they, they get distant. And so yeah. it's always trying to find that medium of comfort. And that's kind of what I wanted to turn boyish into my, my background kind of came from working a lot with the factories here in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, I was very fortunate to be able to have that in my backyard uh, you know, I, I grew up, at, you know, from ever since I was interested in fashion at the ages of uh, 16, I started printing shirts. Yeah. Um, and I, I was burning screens, printing shirts, doing all that sort of stuff for fun. And then I couldn't find jeans that fit me. Uh, I was really thin and and uh, and I wanted skinnier jeans and everyone was wearing baggy <laughs> jeans. Yeah. This is like year 2002. Uh, and so, you know, I always looked at like Led Zeppelin and Bruce Springsteen. And I was like, oh, I want some jeans that kind of look like that. These cool looking Levi's. Yeah. But every time I ever bought a pair of Levi's, I was like, they're so big and baggy. Like, <laughs> how do they not make these anymore? Yeah. And so ultimately I just, I got into fashion just because out of the interest of wanting to buy, uh, you know, buy a pair of jeans that, that were different than what was out in the market. And so I started reconstructing like all different types of jeans, everything from Levi's to Lee's or Wrangler, whatever I can find at the local, uh, you know, resale stores, mm-hmm. you know, we had like Salvation Army and different yeah. sort of vintage shop and I'm buying for like $5 back then. And uh, I, I used my mom's sewing machine. I broke that probably about like <laughs> a couple times and had to get it fixed until I, I saved up enough money to buy an industrial machine. And then at that point in time, I barely can sew and I was trying to use an industrial machine. I think I sewed through my finger at least twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, it was the interesting experience. I was young. I used to love taking things apart. So this was just a, another, you know, to me, another machine that I was taking apart, uh, you know, mm. jeans itself, though it was a, it was a garment. And, and I, I, I sort of sooner or later kind of realized the artisan craft of, of putting a jean together that it wasn't like traditional fashion, which we call cut and sew, where you get a fabric, you cut it and sew it into something, and then that's it. You know, yeah. denim had functionality. It had, uh, you know, it was, it needed to be functional. It needed to be constructed well, uh, and it needed to look and design, you know, friendly to, to match people's perspective of how they're going to use it, whether it be for work or whether it be for casualness. And, and that just always interested me, especially in the chemical side of the 
chemistry behind dyeing and then taking the dye out to give it a sort of patinaed look. And, and then, uh, you know, I just kind of years of just doing that and playing around in college to figure out what I wanted to do. And I realized college wasn't my path. So mm-hmm. I got a, you know, I started my own little brand in 2008 or 2007 and, uh, started selling some jeans in Japan and the pan, the, what was back then the pandemic of back then was the uh, economic world crisis. Yeah. So it was kind of a poor timing. Yeah. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years later and I realized I'm starting another company in a weird point of view of an economic recession. It's just, apparently it attracts whatever I'm doing <laughs> when it comes to starting companies, but, um, or the economy you know, is just uh, constantly screwed, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. As the more you read about history, the more I, as I'm getting, uh, you know, I'm starting to open up my eyes to see how the past was. And this is a flow. Hmm. And, and that's why I said life is, is a balance because that's what happens is that things get imbalanced. And then because of that is all it takes is one person to just, you know, tip it over or well, not yeah. one person, but like one sort of, you know, a pandemic or, 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 you know, a financial crisis in, in the mortgage area due to, you know, a bubble being popped or whatever people want to coin terms that doesn't mm-hmm. get too complicated. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, I, you know, I, I kept going in fashion. You know, I uh, ended up working for a small brand called Them Atelier uh, mm-hmm. here in LA, and I, I had the chance. It was a small team of four of us, and I was always, I was doing everything from putting the buttons and rivets on jeans to, you know, at the factories making sure the manufacturers were making it correctly, and I was even cutting stuff with yeah. the big cutting machines. And so, that was really where I got my hands dirty. And then I went off to um, start another brand with uh, another. Um, uh, sort of fashion based entrepreneur that had already had a couple of successful companies, but that didn't work out well. So yeah, you know, I was, you know, working with another successful, uh, fashion entrepreneur, uh, started up a small brand that didn't, we weren't working very well together. Uh, I learned a lot from that position because I learned that, uh, there's some interesting characters in fashion Mm. that are in some sort of ways. I don't want to use the word narcissistic, but, Close to that. Uh, and, and, and kind of the first time that really opened up my eyes to the ego in which this industry is really built around because ultimately a lot of fashion is, is selling uh, people, you know, their outward interpretation of their inner self. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up, uh, you know, I had some friends that worked, uh, my friend that owned uh, Revolve and uh, my other friend was doing the apparel group for them. And so they asked me to come build some jeans for them. And I actually ended up, over there, just consulting, building uh, denim for their current brands that they had, which was uh, Lovers and Friends. And then they had just started this brand called Tularosa and then uh, Majorelle, Mar- um, LPA. I started just kind of helping them with their brands until I started a brand for them called Girlfriend. Yeah. And so Girlfriend, I had kind of launched it for them. I built it. It was uh, all built off of my blocks I had. I used to do a lot of pattern work back in the day. Um, and so I really wanted to focus on creating a product there that was different than all the stretch jeans that were on the market. Yeah. And I was working a lot with rigid fabrics that were very similar to Levi's. There was actually a mill in Texas that used to make a lot of fabric for Levi's. They're shrink to fit fabrics. And they had like a bunch of dead stock fabrics left behind after they closed. And I picked up a lot of those and started making some jeans. And sooner or later, after they saw a couple of the jeans I was making, they were really excited about those jeans more so than... The, the stretch jeans that they wanted me to start. Okay. So after kind of building together the whole branding package for them, the jeans and everything, we launched the brand 
it was really successful. We got it in Barney's RIP. Um, and they, they were doing really well with the brand. Uh, but I realized that, you know, working there, the more I got involved with figuring out how to make jeans look different, I started learning more about the chemistry side of things, the impact of things. And, and I, I was very interested in, in a topic that was coming up more about sustainability because it didn't really exist in denim yeah. besides like every here and there, I saw some people do organic cotton, which I didn't even understand. Like, yeah, okay. it's not like we're eating this. Like why is cotton <laughs> why does it matter? organic, yeah. you know? And so the fact that I thought like that, I already knew like other people had these thoughts. And mm. so I really wanted to define the differences of what was making fashion not not a good, you know, industry on the earth itself. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it was good for people in, in the regard that they were happy to be wearing clothes and they're happy to that now they don't have to spend as much on clothes. They can get more clothes, you know, and uh, and I just – I ended up getting an opportunity to work with uh, Reformation and mm-hmm. build uh, a, a sort of, you know, uh, Reformation jeans line, which was not just jeans, but I also got to to do their whole knit program and a lot of their casual clothing to kind of create a whole sort of uh, subgroup of the Reformation dress line that they had that was super successful. And that was really where I was defining what sustainable jeans meant because yeah. at that point in time, this was, I think, 2016, that no one really defined defined it very well and, and i felt like reformation was the real leader in fashionable sustainability because yeah. before then it was like you got you got north face you got patagon you got all these people doing sustainable things but it's like all right to be sustainable i have to go hiking i have to look like i'm about <laughs> to rock climb it wasn't like you know reformation was breaking down these barriers where they're like you can be sexy yeah and sustainable at the same time you can go to your work party everyone's going to ask you who made your dress and you can tell them that it was made sustainably in mm-hmm. los angeles and be able to even show them where it was made. Like that was unheard of before then. Yeah. And, uh, and it's very complicated. It's a very, you know, I was very uh, intrigued. The owner of the company is uh, one of the hardest working and most intelligent women I've ever worked for. I know she can be complicated at times, but sometimes those people with these really in-depth ideas can be complicated because not everybody's going to understand them or yeah. have the same work ethics. So I was very lucky that I was like one of those workaholics had a very in-depth sort of uh, try to guess people's minds and figure out how to adapt to that. And I got very lucky to be able to be there. The only thing I wasn't lucky about was when I when I first stepped in there, they told me, we don't use cotton. Cotton's very bad. I said, mm. well, what are we making these jeans out of that? Because jeans are made out of cotton. It's yeah. like the primary material. That, and, and so I learned a lot about cotton. You know, uh, I talked to a lot of people and uh, I'm probably going on for way too long. I'm probably, no, this is- a lot of these... Questions you're, the questions you're going to ask me in the future of this conversation are probably being answered now. I apologize, <laughs> but okay, it's but... just me. This is just mid-afternoon coffee talk to me. So no, you go, you go um, on, mate. Yeah. Make my job easy. Yeah, no, but uh, the, the great, the great thing was, uh, they, they really, you know, the girls were great working with everyone there. Was they were so inspirational, so inspired, and you know, I. I went out and I, I did what I love to do. I love to research. I love to ask questions. I like to get my hands dirty. I started traveling to mills, farms, uh, dyeing companies and all that. And before I had gone over to Reformation and when I was doing Girlfriend, I realized that, you know, I'm building brands for other people and that, you know, I'm never going to have a part of it. It doesn't matter how successful I make other people. You know, I'm not really being included enough in, in, in the success. Yeah. I was very lucky that Reformation included me a little bit more in their success. But even then, I knew that I had 
a timestamp of my success of like when I when am I I'm, I felt dispensable. Yeah. There's always been something that has been a part of me. I always feel dispensable. These big corporate companies where people work, it's just like I didn't want to feel like a cog in a machine. So I always kind of uh, wanted to do my own thing. And, you know, when I was building brands for Evolve, I was also working on my own brand, which was Boyish. And so when I went to go work for Reformation, I told the owner that I have this brand that I've been working on. I just want to be able to work on it on the weekends there at night after I'm done working. So I put it in my contract that I can do that. And so while working, you know, 50, sometimes 60 hour work weeks at Reformation, I still managed to find little time to, you know, to, to work on boyish. Yeah. Cool. And, you know, there's lots of relationships, friendship and romantic that were suffered Mm -hmm. because of this. And, you know, I'm not happy because of that, but, um, God blessing that the people that were closest around me understood what I was working on and what I had to do. And, they're still around. Some of them are actually here at Boyish with me, helping me build this. My sister, that's my great. best friend of, of over 20 years. Um, and we work great together. And so I was really just able to take all my experience, everything that I, I loved about all the companies I worked at, everything I didn't love about all the companies I worked at, and kind of apply it to some sort of deep-rooted passion I had that I wasn't even sure what it was, to be honest mm. with you, when I started Boyish. I was like still trying to figure out what is it? Where's my place in this world? What am I doing? Like, why did, why am I even trying to make jeans anymore? I'm like, is there even any purpose? I mean, like there's plenty of them out there, you know? And so, yeah, that's kind of just what kind of led me to now what boyish is, which I'm not going to keep going right now. I'm going to let you ask me the questions and I'll explain a little bit more about that as we go on. Cool. So one thing then, what, what I'd like to know is recently, you know, I recently made a transition as we've launched the brand no skin that I was going to move into doing that, um, at least close to full time, you know, trying to do a little bit here and there elsewhere as well to pay some bills. But I decided that I needed to move across. And that's because as well, my job at the time wasn't really, you know, it wasn't in the same industry. It was a little bit different. So at what stage did you then say, all right, doing doing this day job is not sustainable anymore with doing boyish and, and you wanted to switch across and do boyish full time? Where, where was that pivot point? Um. It was it was a weird pivot point. It kind of what happened, you know. I always view work work as no, you know, it's a, it's a partnership, it's a relationship. And so when I was at Reformation, I felt like I kept getting sidelined. Okay. Uh, I, it was weird. Like I was I was doing I was successful, and because of my success was actually a, a detriment to 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 my success. Mm-hmm. Like as I became more successful, they wanted to grow it more. Yeah. So they would bring in other people from other companies that didn't really know what they were doing, but they had a good resume. And so then they would get involved. Then I have to wait for them for six months to screw everything up. And then after they finally got rid of that person, then I would have to go back and then fix everything again. Yeah. And that happened twice. And then I just figured, you know, after two times, I just figured like, this is going to continue to happen because, you know, um, you know, maybe because I was, I, I was probably being a little bit too passive and, uh, you know, I've, I didn't realize this until after I actually, I probably realized this last year during the pandemic, because I realized, uh, how, you know, I started losing, actually, there's the first time I started losing key employees in my company that I'd hired. Okay. And I started realizing the importance and, and I started also realizing my lack of communication I have. And I really started working more on my communication skills. But, you know, if I went back to look at things, it's like, I should have communicated more when I was at Reformation to tell them like, look, I got this, like, just let me handle this. I want to help you more. Like. Sometimes it, certain people, you know, ask for help in different ways. Yeah. Or sometimes people, they can't ask for help. So you actually have to kind of force help upon them. 
And, and, and life is about trying to identify that as best as possible. You're not always going to get it right, but you got to try to figure out how to read people. You know, as they say, read the room, read the energy, feel the energy and try to interact at the best point to inspire, motivate and help pull people together. And I feel like I have my sort of blips of sometimes I'm good at that. Sometimes I'm not, you know, cause it gets exhausting to try to, you know, be an inspirational character to a team yeah for you know, sure. sometimes you also like i just want to follow people i'm like can we just can i just follow you for a little bit like <laughs> yeah. does somebody else want to do this job for a day like i'm i'm totally fine so yeah i started realizing i was just a little bit burnt out and that you know being burnt out isn't bringing good energy to the team so um i wasn't that i was like all right you know like boyish is at a point to where it's like i can make money like i even after i left i don't think i i only started paying myself last year like yeah. mid-year I haven't fully paid myself for a year. So it's like, I, I just had saved and I've never been one to spend my money. Ironically, I don't buy nice clothing items. <laughs> yeah. I just pretty much wear t-shirts and sweatshirts that I make myself. And that's pretty yeah. much, and jeans. And that's pretty much it. You know, the most expensive thing I will buy is a, is a pair of probably like New Balance or or, <laughs> or Converse or something like that. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe a jacket here and there. Um, like I bought a nice Patagonia jacket. It was made with like, you know, uh, hemp in it. And I was like, Oh, this is pretty cool. I mean, keep in mind, I had way too much recycled polyester in it and I'm not a big fan of plastics, but I was like, I, I'm going to support people that are at least trying to yeah. do something right. They had some hemp in it. So I was like, whatever. Yeah. It's a, good, nonetheless, it's a good stop. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So that that's where I was just like, all right, you know, like let's, let's just f- clear my mind. I was actually, uh, you know, I, I came back from this like uh, sort of work vacation where I was working remote for a couple weeks and uh, and I came back being like, all right, you know, I think that I need to give this a try and uh, I should do it on terms that works out for everybody. So I gave them an advance notice. I said by the end of the year, um, you know, like I, I, you know, this was maybe two months from the point I was at. I was like, I would like to I would like to resign. Yeah. And uh, and and she calls me right away being like, what's going on? And I was just like, kind of explained it a little bit, you know, like. You know, I was like, you know, I'm just not feeling in my place. And I was actually hoping to stay another one or two years while I still worked on Boyish on the side. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I was slow growing Boyish. I knew that fashion brands take like two to three years in the market of just kind of sitting around, just kind of mm. playing around to figure out what works, what do people like, get, keeping the name out there. I feel like most buyers are like, are they going to go out of business after one or two years? You know, let's wait and see. I don't want to get too involved and, and invest mm. in a brand. You know, so it's like a lot of that's happening. And so uh, I told them too, I would, I would freelance for them. So I freelanced for them for another three months, even after that. So it took me about five months from the time I told them to when I uh, actually left uh, the company. And, uh, you know, cause I wanted to make sure they found somebody to replace them. And so at that point in time, I went to go work for, work at uh, Boyish and, and I was like, all right, you know what? I think that Boyish has got enough legs that, that uh, I can make it work. Yeah. You know, I, I decided to say, okay, to, you know, like some larger companies to try and sell the product to see if it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened after that was a little bit different of a story, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I made it work and I've learned a lot in this last two years that I've left reformation and only been working on my own company. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's awesome growth and bearing in mind as well, you know, I'm here in Australia and, and I'm well aware of boyish and I see boyish a lot. And that's because I've immersed myself into the industry as well of ethical fashion, but I feel like it's extremely prevalent. I feel like the brand is so, it, at least it appears so well solidified as well. It's actually surprising that you've been only dedicating two years fully to that because it looks, 
you know, it looks like long term established and like you've really you've really embedded your brand there and you're sold in so many places. Um, yeah, so it's an amazing it's amazing amount of progress for two years working on something full time as well. Yeah, I'm fortunate that I've actually had the experience of, you know, building other brands. And, yeah. You know, I've, I've seen the inner workings of a lot of other companies and I actually experienced it for myself and how I would be treated even having that knowledge. Mm. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a journey. There is no destination. It is just a constant journey. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> man. So are you the sole founder of Boyish? Yes. Yeah, so I founded I founded Boyish in the beginning. Um, and I, uh, I have one, I have a business partner that came in about two years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a, a European, uh, business partner that he, you know, he's like, yeah, it's a beautiful brand. I think it would do really great in Europe. So he wanted to partner with me and help me kind of build the brand in Europe, which has been great. This is, uh, this was a great strategy for me. Cause I'm like, I can't, I don't, I don't have any European experience. I don't know how to get out there. Yeah. So, uh, we kind of, at that point in time, I, I, I took a business partner and I, and it was really it was great because now I kind of had so many uh, ricochet ideas off that wasn't just me or somebody on my team that also came from like a different cultural background of business. So, uh, and he was also a lot, uh, not a lot older than me, but you know, he's older than me and, and had um, some really inspirational motivation for me. And I thought that was, that was really good. kind of, you know, his, also his patience would, would, would help me uh, feel like everything's okay when, used feeling a little bit uh, anxious about things or uh, too much work or what am I supposed to do? Or yeah. there's an issue that happened, you know, they've been through it. They know like, Oh, issues are going to happen. You know, it's like, we'll work through this. Mm. And so uh, with me, I become a perfectionist. I'm like, we have, we can only have one or two problems. We can't have four. It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, calm down, calm down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's really important, man. And it's, it's actually, you know, this is what I always talk about the reasons that I do this podcast and it's to have conversations like this and to be honest even what we've talked about so far comes as reassurance to me as well because um, for anyone listening to the show and who sees this a lot of people may know that we we launched no skin like last week was when it was more of a soft launch but we officially said all right it's out it's available we're operating now and I mean we are really talking a week and there's me sitting here as well feeling impatient like but man, it's been quiet. It's quiet today. You know, nothing's kicking off today. Not a lot's happening today. Is that it? Is it done? Is it going to fail? Like it's, you know, knowing that, like you say, oh. a brand has to sit there for a couple of years and really embed itself and let people find out about you, let them build the trust, let them, you know, feel like your brand's actually got a place in the market. It's, it's a long burn. And yeah, to hear someone like you saying that who has, you know, a great, successful, sustainable denim brand is reassuring that you know it doesn't all have to happen immediately it's it's about patience and it's about letting it come more organically as well yeah it, you know and that's the thing is that part of part of building products and you know is that you're guessing what people are going to want in a certain instance yeah. when you first start off so you got to figure out what works and and even then, like even now where we are right now, we launch new products and like I'm still every day, like right now there's a product that I want to make for fall that nobody really bought. Yeah. But I'm like, maybe it might be successful if we put it on our website, but then I have to think about minimums. So I have to have an exit strategy. Yeah. And so, but I like this exit strategy, unlike the linear base of fast fashion mm. that is built off of, all right, we need to make stuff because we're not going to sell it. So we need to make it cheap enough to be able to make it yeah. money by having it on extreme discounts. 
And so with me, I'm like, all right, I need to be able to meet MOQs. I need to be able to, to I want to make this product because I believe in it. How are we going to do the market? So I'm actually figuring out how to make it successful versus yeah. how to make it, you know, make money off of it, knowing that it's going to be a complete failure. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and, and this is, this is extremely different, per, uh, you know, perspective because you're, you're, you're working on negative perspective versus positive perspective, even though both of them don't exist. Mm. You, nobody knows. You don't know until it happens. The only thing you can work off of is past data. So if you're starting off new too on something too, you have no past data. You literally only have a hunch. Yeah. You have your trend, your, your sort of trend forecasting, uh, you know, mentality that you're like, all right, well, I see this person that I know is a trendsetter. I see this company, I see this. And because they're doing this, I think that us doing this might align in the market correctly. Yeah. And it's like, still, even at that point, even though you're using, you're redu- reducing your risk down as much as possible, but you still, the risk always lies. So you have to figure out how in the end, everything will work out. Absolutely, Matt. And it's exactly as you say there. And this is it's one of my questions that I had for you. And it's one of the challenges that we're facing. So we've we've created our first product line. Um, and if if I'm honest, I look at that and I'm like, it's great. I'm really happy with what we've gotten considering it's our first as well. I feel I feel great about what we've achieved there. But I look at it and I'm like, I feel like we need a little bit more diversity. We need a little bit more to offer. We've also gone down a route as well where we're, you know, looking back, potentially we've diversified too much in the fact that we actually have footwear we have denim and we have outerwear it's a very broad spectrum of product which makes it challenging but i'm like you know what we we need more outerwear we need to diversify that offering a little bit but especially for moqs and as well moqs if you want something made well and you want to use good factories and you want to use good materials uh, how did how did you navigate that in the early stages as well i mean i'm not sure of what your you know your funding situation was but for us, we're looking at this and it's, you know, it's how we battle an MOQ that's fairly high. You know, we're not, we're not asking for tiny amounts of things, but we still want to have it made well. And I think that's the biggest challenge for us in this early stages. My technique is the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I leverage myself. Yeah. And, you know, this is what people always say, I'm overworking myself, but I leverage myself and whatever I can do because I view all my vendors as partners, mm-hmm. I want them to be successful. And yeah. in order for them to be successful, you know, then I can be successful. But yeah. they can't be successful unless I am able to work along the lines. Like, I don't want to force somebody that's like, oh, I, don't, I can't really do 100 units for you. That's not going to work. Like, we're just not built for that. I'm not going to force these people to do that. Yeah. But if they're like, well, if you do all these units and you have one that's 100 units, we can do that for you. So yeah. really, what, the only way to figure that out is to straight up communicate with people. It's kind of like, imagine going on a date with somebody, you know, you're like all excited. You're like, but you know, you got some make it or break it's that you got to pump out on that first date. Be like, <laughs> so you're going to like fish it in there. You know, like, all right, here's my make it or break it's, this is what I want to do. So it's like, you have this like inspiring dinner. You're, yeah. you're all talking, you drop some fun stuff. You really start to get a connection and you start like fishing them in, like being like, all right, you know, like, so, you know, we're not a very big brand, you know, like, I know you got all these great brands, like, oh my God, you guys are doing so good. And you have to like, it's, it's all just like psychology in a certain way of building partnerships, no different than even friendships are the same way. It's not like you're just going to go into somebody, some guy at the market and be like, dude, those are some fucking sick jeans. I really want to be friends with you, but you can't do these things with me. You know, it's like, it doesn't work out like that. It's like, it's barging in. And, uh, and this is the funny thing because business is so complicated because you're working also with the 
you know, people are not looking for, for, for happiness. They're looking for profit. They're looking for yeah. benefit, uh, which becomes extremely egotistical in this certain aspect. So what can I get from you? What can you give to me? So understanding these predicaments on how you're working with factories, you can kind of figure that all out. Yeah. I have to ask one question right now. Can you just hear the printer in the background just going off right now? I can hear it. It's fine. We can, we can just pause for a second right. until that's done. Let me just fix that real quick. Yeah, all good, man. Life in the 2020s is different. There's more masks. Hey, guys. Welcome back to my channel. You different options for DIY at home masks. Less plane travel. More fires. More smoke. More coastal erosion. Over the years, we've seen, of course, the sand does come and go. But again, I've never seen it like this before. Not in my lifetime. Not enough water in some places and too much in others. A woman's been rescued from a tree and a train derailed as parts of the state continue to be battered by wild What's a person to do in a world with an already changed climate? Did I say already changed? Yeah, and on track for much more change. Shifting baseline syndrome, a phenomenon of lowered expectations in which each generation regards a progressively poorer natural world as normal. In fact, the only thing we know for certain about the future is that our already weird present is just the beginning. We are through the looking glass. The shows in the Climactic Collective are your guide created by fellow travelers. Each show is independently owned and controlled by its hosts, all engaged with the climate crisis, but without feeling the need to constantly explain the greenhouse effect. Greenhouse gases are a bit like a doona. So check out Climactic.fm and our flagship podcast, Climactic, to get involved and engaged with the climate crisis. Because these are climactic times, and everything has changed. The Climactic Collective. We just took a quick break there um, because we had some uh, noise issues in the background and we got on to then speaking about how you've moved offices and, you know, having to do, you know, a lot of work to get the office ready and make that nice. And I feel that. And you also talked there about how you were doing like 14 hour days for 40 days straight, um, you know, partly due to the pandemic and everything that was going on. So, so one thing there is you said you were really burnt out is how have you managed, how have you managed that founding your own company? How have you managed the burnout? And also the thing which I'm finding at the moment, to be honest, is that I'll sit here and work and work and work and work because it's hard to not have the mentality of if I take a break and this doesn't succeed, then I'll think I could have done more. So how have you managed that, you know, when it's come to starting your own business this time around? Yeah, I mean, that is the age all tale that you got work to do always there's yeah. always something to do there's just work to do constantly and, and i uh i think it's a balance of learning how to be like hey there's always going to be something to do mm. so the next task is prioritizing figuring out what is important to do right now and what doesn't so that's the that's mm. going to be the whole take a deep breath and then think about plan it all out and then attack. That's yeah. probably the one thing I'm still working on, but it is something I've been mostly in probably the last, I want to say like four to six months has been something that I've been really working on. We we adopted a uh, software in our company last year, probably probably like even over a year ago now. It's called Notion. Yeah, It's a task management software that really helps apply everybody. It even connects into Slack. And 
some other integrations that are really interesting. And I had to manage a team without being a really organized person. Hmm. And so I started work as I started actually working with everybody and, and helping them manage their own tasks. Uh, it actually helped me start to realize how to manage and, and, and make sure that I wasn't stressed because anxiety actually comes from the fear of not knowing or the fear of fearing the unknown or the fear of fearing the future of everything that you think you have going on. So as soon as you start kind of like stopping, taking a deep breath, planning out every, like taking everything, this is my long list of everything I have and prioritizing into like the things I have to get done. This is what I can do. And then monitoring your, your actually production flow. So for instance, I'll take like my technical designer, you know, she's doing comments for fittings and tech packs and, you know, everything from, uh, you know, production releases to, you know, do new developments and doing sketches. She even has to do some pattern corrections sometimes to show the, uh, the, the, the factories how to do the corrections specifically, yeah. you know, because this is the one tough thing about working with um, overseas pattern makers is, is that, you know, they have a special way of doing patterns, which sometimes makes women, you know, it's almost like they're torturing. They want to torture women. That's what I always call it. I'm like, do they just think that women don't have a butt? Like yeah. what, what is exactly going on here? And so, you know, and sometimes that can be very time uh, restricting in, oh, in regards sure. to uh, all the work that she has to get done. And so I tell her, I'm like, look, let's monitor your daily flow. Let's put together everything you have. Let's categorize it into easy comments, you know, like new comments and, you know, pattern correction comments. And this is how we're going to be able to get it done. And then we figure out her flow of like two to four a day. Yeah. It's like pretty much where we're at. Sometimes she can stretch it to six. Sometimes she's only getting one or two based on how much other work she has going on. But mm. it gives us a flow. And then we can kind of figure out, all right, this is how much we can get done per week. So that whenever she gets stressed, be like, I have so much work. I'm like, put the math together. Yeah. The math won't lie and tell you if you should feel stressed or not. Because then you can identify ahead of time. When you identify it ahead of time, you come talk to me. And I'm going to be like, hey, let's get you some help. Yeah. And then I can, I can plan ahead. If you tell me in the moment... Hey, I'm stressed out because I got too much work right now and it's all due right now. I can't help you. Hmm. So this sort of organizational method of always having too much to do is never going to go away. The only thing you can do to solve that is learning how to plan and organize and prioritize. And then the next step after that is asking for help when you feel like there's too much that's loaded in here if you're bottlenecking on any specific area. Yeah. That's great, man. It's great, great time management advice. And I come from, you know, I come from a world of project management, like software project management prior to this. And the stuff you're describing there is almost like, you know, how you have web development teams estimate on tasks and how to structure out weeks. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's fine. And that's it. It's just applying that. And sometimes then being able to take that, and I'm sure you do this as well, is that you're giving her this awesome time management advice. And then sometimes it's actually just applying it to yourself. You know, it's, it's often hardest to give yourself mm-hmm. your own advice as well. Um, yeah, especially when you feel like you're trying to manage everybody and get your own work done. You're like, well, I don't have time to manage my work then. And it's like, you have to, you have to, you're just tearing down walls is all it is. Like your stubborn walls that you put up of being like, nope, I'm pushing myself. I'm like, if I'm feeling like this, it's for a particular reason. Sometimes also just taking a day off or to go like hike and get into nature because nature is really healing. It kind of relieves a lot of that pressure that Mm. gets onto you. Um, I, I surf a lot in the mornings before I go and work. So I get up nice. early at 5 a.m. I'm at the beach. I'm surfing from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. I'm in the office by 8.39 and I'm having meetings. And yeah. even along the way to the beach or back to the beach, you know, I'm having phone calls. But the, the intertwined balance of it all, of doing what you love and things that also make you less stressed, 
you know, cause like being in the water for me, I don't have my phone on me. I can't, yeah, that's yeah, I can think about fun, creative projects and interesting stuff pops into my mind. But really it's like that balance of trying to figure out those little things, you know, like if, even if it's just a lunch in the middle of the day, lunch, or even if it's just 30 minutes in the middle of the day to just meditate, yeah. whatever, whatever you really need to do, but it's good to unclick from the whole system. Oh, and for sure, man. Just, and then just click back in and then you're going to be like, all right, yeah, this makes a little bit more sense. I'm starting to see things that I wasn't seeing before because I was clouded. My mind was clouded with anxiety. I think it's great advice. It's so important to take that to take that step away. And, you know, it's, it's often the case if you do that, you take the time to meditate or go for a walk or whatever it might be. And in your case, it's awesome that you can go and surf. That's a really nice way to do it. And then it's, yeah, the more you sit there and the more you sit there into the night working and hustling and, you know, there's the whole hustle culture as well about just, you know, relentlessly working end to end, but you don't make clear decisions when you're in that headspace. You need, you need the clarity to make the good decisions for sure. Cool. So I also just wanted to ask as well, so how many people are there working with you at Boyish now? What has the team grown to? Uh, about 12. Awesome. That's cool. Including myself. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, 12, including myself. We had, uh, we have, um, I have, you know, uh, this, it's about eight full-time payroll staff and then yeah. myself, that's nine. And then we have about three uh, freelancers that work with us uh, mm-hmm. on specific tasks, uh, you know, marketing or social media or web yeah. design, graphic design, that sort of stuff that we sub out. Uh, and so, yeah, it's very small. You know, like we're, we're, a lot of people think we're actually bigger than we are. Mm. We're actually a really small company. You know, people look at us and I'm like, wow, you're in so many stores. I'm like, yeah, but it's like a little bit in those little stores. Yeah. And the amount of profit that that even brought us was so minuscule anyways. You know, most of uh, most of what we're focusing on right now is our own direct consumer market. And, and that's difficult because that actually requires more staff to really do it mm. correctly. And, and so it's that whole balance of trying to do both wholesale and direct consumer and, you know, it's like they're kind of there's always tension between the two of like, oh, well, now a wholesaler wants this, but then you need it or you need something from a wholesaler. And, and it's always an inventory battle. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is a two part episode. We're just getting stuck into this conversation now about dealing with wholesalers and distributors and getting stuck right into some of that interesting business talk. So make sure you head to the next episode in the feed and carry on listening to the conversation with myself and Jordan of Boyish Jeans.